Good morning. Uh, would you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2? Uh, we're going to be in Exodus 2, 3, and 4 uh, today uh, in our series. Six, I think this is week 6 in our summer series, Abe to Dave, Abraham to King David. So week 6 for us today in the series, um, we are... Uh, we are weaving a thread through the entire series, the foundation of the new covenant freedom that we have in Jesus. The foundation for that is in the Old Testament. It's the, in the Old uh, Testament stories, God's salvation history, everything, everything pointing ultimately to the fulfillment that we have in Jesus, uh, our, our Savior. Um, so week six, and we are week two, looking at the life of Moses. Uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, Lucas Smith uh, preached on the first 40 years of Moses' life. Um, Exodus 1 and 2 would uh, encourage you to go back and listen to that if, uh, you, if you weren't able to do that. Uh, there's a lot of context that I'm just going to pick up. I'm just going to pick up where he left off last week. Uh, Moses' life can really be understood in terms of a chronological timeline of thirds. His first 40 years in Egypt uh, into the home of Pharaoh. You know the story. Uh, his mother, there was an edict that Pharaoh said that Israelites were getting too big, too large. And he's like, all the male babies need to be thrown in the Nile. And his mom, his heroic, shrewd mom, put Moses in that basket, right? And put, her along, uh, put him along the reeds where uh, Pharaoh's daughter was bathing. And she adopted him into the family. So he grew up in the palace. He was a Hebrew, and all the other Hebrews were slaves. And he was saved because of his mom. He was saved because of his mom. She was shrewd, and she saved him, and uh, he grew up in the palace. And a big emphasis that Lucas was talking about last week is there's this scene when he's 40 years old, and he sees uh, one of his own people, a Hebrew slave, being mistreated by an Egyptian. And at the beginning of chapter 2, um, Moses reacts to that, and he murders the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. Uh, and then word begins to get out about it. And uh, that's where we'll pick up from today. But this is a, uh, from a commentator. Uh, his name is David uh, Guzik. And Mos or, uh, Lucas Smith used this last week. And I wanted to start with this uh, today. He says, just like Jesus, Moses could not deliver when he lived in the palaces of glory. He had to come down off the throne, away from the palace, and into a humble place before he could deliver his people. And so I wanted to put an emphasis into that line, into a humble place. Um, Moses did a bad thing, he had some regrets, and now he was on the run. I don't know if that's relatable to anyone in the room. Like, I've done some bad things, I've, I have some regret, and I have, I've had seasons in my life where my future was uncertain, and there was some fear in my life, and that's where Moses is. He's 40 years old, he's on the run from his granddad, his adopted granddad, Pharaoh, who wanted to kill him because word had gotten out about what had happened. And so Moses flees to a place called Midian, and he will live there for the next 40 years. And that is where we're going to be talking about today, the process of God's healing work of humility uh, in our lives. I'm going to start with uh, Hebrews 2. Uh, I think the slide says 14. We're going to start in 13. And I'm going to just pick up where Lucas left off. I'll read down to the end of the chapter uh, with you. So the next day, the day after 
he had killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day, Moses went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting, two of his own people. And they were, you know, they were throwing down, had a disagreement. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. And he thought, what I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses. So we have Moses being born. Pharaoh's trying to kill him. He is saved because of the shrewdness of his mom. Now he's 40 years old. He makes this huge mistake. Now the same Pharaoh's trying to kill him again. So Pharaoh heard this. He's trying to kill Moses. But Moses, because he was afraid, he ran. Fight or flight. He didn't fight anymore. He was gone. He fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. This is Midian. So you can see where uh, Egypt is up at the top. Uh, Great Sea. Joppa over there. That's all Israel. Jericho. That's the Dead Sea. Jerusalem, Midian, Arabia, Saudi, today, Saudi Arabia. You can see, if you can see it down uh, on the map there, uh, Mount Sinai is right there. Something significant would happen in Moses' last 40 years at Mount Sinai. Greg Hook will talk about that next week. But he flees to Midian, on the run, afraid. And he sat down by a well. And a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their flocks. And some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to the rescue. He came to stand up for these seven daughters and watered their flock. And when the girls returned to Ruel, also Jethro, we'll see his name is Jethro in chapter 3, same person, to their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. And he even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. So Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Now, I don't think this happened on the same day. Because I'm a dad of four daughters. And you don't, like, help one of my daughters get some water, and they're like, hey, you can marry her. There's, there's a whole, like, trust thing that's got to be built up over time here. So I'm just saying, I mean, I don't know, but I think some time went along here before Jethro was like, ah, yeah, okay, you know, you know what? Zipporah, Zipporah. But he earned trust, he served, and he earned the trust of Jethro, and Jethro gave Zipporah something um, something of significance, his daughter. Uh, and then they got married, and Zipporah gave birth to a son. They had other sons. And Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. So Gershom means alien there. Moses was in Midian, not in Egypt, right? And during that long period, the long period of Moses in Midian, uh, we don't it doesn't specify here, but in Acts 7, Stephen, before he is stoned, uh, gives a long kind of dialogue about Moses. And he tells us specifically in Acts 7 that this long period in Midian was 40 years. So that's the long period that's happening. During this time, the king of Egypt died. The Pharaoh that was trying to kill Moses because Moses killed that Egyptian 
40 years goes by, and now he has passed away. That Pharaoh is gone. And the Israelites groaned in their slavery context. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had how many sons? 12 sons. Which son was thrown into that cavern and sold out to being enslaved? Joseph, who was enslaved to what country? Egypt. God favored him, positioned him in Egypt as the number two guy in all the land, right? Uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago. And then there was a famine in the land, and so jo Joseph's brothers and his father Jacob, they all come over to Egypt. And that's where they ended up staying. And there were 70 in all when they came. And now, over time, there are lots and lots of Israelites, lots and lots of Hebrew people. Okay? And that's what was tripping Pharaoh up 40 years prior. Like, there are too many. And they're going to overthrow us. We're going to kill all of the male children. And so now there, there are many. And the Pharaoh that had positioned Joseph favorably, that Pharaoh had passed away. And they had, the new Pharaoh had forgotten about Joseph. And so God's people became enslaved. Okay? And so the Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God was about to move on their behalf. And he would use Moses, he would use Moses to move on their behalf. The work of Moses in Midian, 40 years, to do a deep, delivering, healing work of humility in Moses' life. And it was now time for Moses to return and to be God's chosen instrument to deliver Israel, the Israelites, out of being enslaved. The big question I want you to consider here is this. When Moses left Egypt the first time, what was he feeling Shame and fear. I would say fear when he left. Why? Well, it says it actually in verse 14. He realized that the word had gotten out about what he had done. It says, then Moses was afraid. The next verse, Foses, uh, Foses. the Pharaoh heard of this and he tried to kill Moses. Would you be afraid? I, th I think that's relatable. I think that's clearly where Moses was. He is afraid. And when you get afraid, when you get stressed, when you get anxious, when life becomes overwhelming, when you, when you do something that's not so good, when you do something bad and you're feeling fear and shame about it, what, what do you do? How do you act? Like what decisions do you make? Moses, uh, seeking to save himself, uh, flees, fight or flight, when we're afraid, typically fight or flight, he flight. He goes away. He, he goes far away to Midian. And uh, God would use this season of his life when he is afraid to work humility in his life and to heal him of his fear. Uh, the process would take, again, 40 years. He married Zipporah. He had sons. He wasn't living in the palace anymore. Like he was adopted. His first 40 years, 
He's royalty. I mean, Egypt was at the top of the world. I mean, he was in the palace, right? And now he is on the run, afraid, no money, no family, meets Jethro, marries his daughter Zipporah. He learns the humble trade of being a shepherd and a husband and a father. So that happens in a long period. And then as we read through the text, two more really, really important things happened in the story. One, the Pharaoh that was trying to kill him because of Moses' murder, he dies. And then it says that God began to prepare for the liberation of his people. He was hearing the cries of his people. And for that, he would call Moses to go back. Forty years prior, Moses was really ready to protect his people. And a pretty um, intense, kind of hot-tempered kind of a way. Would you agree with that? Forty years later, 40 years later, the pendulum kind of swung all the way over to the other side. Because when God goes to Moses and says, it's time for you to go back and liberate my people Israel Moses dodges and wheezes. He, he dodges and he weaves, and it's the famous burning bush story. And uh, I've been singing a song. I grew up in church in Bible camps when I was a kid, and I've been singing a song all week. You guys know, if, do you know what I'm talking about? The burning bush. Come on, Tori, you know the song. The burning bush told me just the other day. No one? Come on. Kenny, come on. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go. If you don't know that song, you're lucky. But that's just like, I just grew up in that. We used to get down on that song, Steve, at like summer camp. You guys, oh, UPBC, you guys don't sing Pharaoh, 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 Pharaoh? Yeah, yeah, okay. You guys just weren't feeling chirpy with me today. Anyway, this is, this is the story of the burning bush. Historical context, 40 years after Moses had been in Midian. What was the work that God was doing in Moses in the 40 years of Midian? Working humility into his heart and soul. It's time. It's time. Listen to what happens. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through the bush, that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange thing. As would we. I just love that Moses penned this and he's like, and Moses went over to see what this strange thing was. I think that's funny. You guys are a tough crowd today. I will go over and see this strange thing, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have seen the misery 
of my people in Egypt. El Roy, the God who sees, back to Hagar and the story of Abraham. Here it is again. I have seen El Roy, the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. El Shaddai, God Almighty, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land and into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, which is Israel, the home of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all the other ites that lived there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen El Roy. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now I am going to send you. I am going to send you, Moses, back to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I? Like, what do you think Moses is feeling right now? What do you think he's experiencing right now? Like, God has just, like, said, like, you're the anointed one. You're the called one to do a significant work of delivery of my people into freedom to the land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses' first question is, who am I? Why are you talking to me? Why, why have you chosen? I mean, he is spinning, right? You guys are, like, spinning in insecurity. Like, surely you got the wrong person for this job, right? Can you feel that with him? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God says, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So Moses says to God, like his first thing is like, who am I? I am with you. Just worship me. Get your eyes off of yourself. Trust me. You're empowered. You're anointed. You are blessed. I'm going to be with you. Next verse, Moses. Here he is again. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your father has sent me me to you and they asked me what is his name then what should I tell them I don't know what to say who am I and I don't know how to do this can you sense that in Moses like I don't want to do this I'm not the right person for this and then we get to verse 14 God said to Moses I am who I am this is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Moses, stop making this about you. This is about me. Who am I? You just tell them that I am has sent you. I want to ask you, like we're 40 years into Midian. When he left Egypt the first time to go into Midian, he was feeling fear. It literally says that, like he was afraid. Now he's 40 years later, he's 80, burning bush. What do you think he's feeling now? 
Fear was clearly written in the scripture. This emotion is not, but I am going to suggest to you that where Moses is, he is spinning out in shame. He is spinning out in shame. Why do I say this? Because of that question that he asked God in verse 11. That question, who am I? Minimize myself, right? Minimize myself, self-critical, all those things. Like that's what that question really is. And I think it's interesting to juxtapose fear and shame for a minute. Fear when he got to Midian, shame when he is 40 years in Midian. When he, when he killed that Egyptian, he had, he had a reactive, intense, hot-tempered personality. I will take care of this. Like, he had some ego. Would you guys agree with that? Like, he had some ego about that. Like, I, I will do this. I can take care of this. And then now, 40 years later, that ego is now shame. Who am I? And what I want to consider is this, that ego, arrogant ego, when he was 40 years old, and shame, who am I? What, what, I don't know how to do this. What should I say? Shame and ego are both on the spectrum of pride because they both make it about me. I'm thinking about me. On one side, i like, I got this. And on the other side, I'm like, I don't got this. I have no idea. And that's where Moses is. He just swung it to the other side, but he still needed to be liberated uh, from off of the pride spectrum. Because again, ego, I can do this. I got this. I'll take care of this. And Moses did that when he killed the Egyptian. Shame says, I can't do this. Who am I? I'm not enough. Who am I to take care of this? That's what Moses is doing now. Fear and shame. Think about another really famous biblical story that happened before Moses where fear and shame was really really prevalent and God needed to do a work to bring deliverance from fear and shame and go all the way back to the garden of Eden with me Genesis 2 God presents uh, Eve to Adam and it says this beautiful famous thing I would do a lot of weddings we 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 talk about this in wedding ceremonies they were naked and unashamed and the two would become one flesh. Genesis 2. That'll preach at a wedding, by the way. Okay? Genesis 3 comes in. They take the apple, right? They, they disobey God. Sin enters the creation. And what's the first thing that Adam and Eve do? I think it's like verse 7 or 8 in Genesis 3. They go get twig leaves and they cover themselves. Pre-fall, pre-fall, naked and unashamed. Now, I'm ashamed. I'm covering myself. And then God is looking at them, where are you? Where are you? And God knew where they were physically. He's the omniscient Lord of the universe. He was asking, when he says, where are you? He wanted to know where their hearts were. And Adam answers, and he says, we hid because we were afraid. Fear and shame. Twiggly's fear. I, and that's what we do. When, we're, when we are spiraling out in fear and shame, we hide. We go away. We go away. We, we, we are prone to believe the lies of the enemy. We pull away from community. 
We isolate, which by the way, isolation is the devil's playground, man. If you want to, if, if, if you want to, you don't want, you don't want to do this, trust me. But James talks about not giving the enemy a foothold. And when we are in isolation, there's, we are prone to lies and the, and the enemy's foothold. And here's what happens in Genesis 3. Because when we have fear and shame, we go away and hide. And God always comes to redeem fear and shame in the lives of his people. He is relentless to liberate us, to heal us, to deliver us from fear and shame. Here's what he does in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. God made garments of, he made garments of what? Somebody tell me. They, 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 they were grabbing like, they're grabbing like, ah! Right? And God, God covered them with something different. What did God cover them with? Clothes, animal skins. What has to happen for an animal skin to go on and cover Adam and Eve? Those animals have to, they have to die and blood has to be shed. Hold that, hold that, because we're going to get to that in the story. Hold that. Fear and shame needed to be redeemed in Adam and Eve. Fear and shame needed to be redeemed in Moses. Would you agree that Moses needed redemption and healing and deliverance from fear and shame? Yes. Does fear and shame need to be redeemed in us? Agreeable? Relatable? To anyone in the room? Anyone else here in the room? Don't raise your hands. Anyone else here in the room struggle with strong emotions of fear and shame? We get gripped by it, strongholds in our life. I would say pastorally in 20 years of walking with people and in my own story, you guys, fear and shame is a stronghold for most people. Um, if you want to see the worst in someone's behavior, like watch them while they are really, really afraid. And you will see reactive, you will see controlling, you will see manipulating, you will see rage, etc., etc., etc. If you want to see the devastation of shame, watch someone spinning out in self-abasement and self-criticism. Like, I'm not enough. I'll never be enough. I'm a bad person. Who am I? Right? Hype, hyper self-critical, self-condemning, self-deprecating thoughts. Um, I had a counselor once look at me because if any of you in the room um, struggle with feeling uh, overcome with fear and shame, uh, I relate to you. It was a part of my journey for many, many, many years. Uh, and I was sitting in a counseling office and was spiraling out in fear and shame. And the counselor looked at me and she said, you, um, you are, you're waging war on your soul. And so if that's in the room, like compassion, compassion, uh, we're, we're all in this together and we're asking God to bring healing and deliverance in our lives. Like, what's the healing power of fear and shame? 
Like it's so like it's so simple. It's so simple and it and it, but it's so powerful. But we have to learn to proclaim the truth of Scripture over our minds and hearts to be delivered from the grip of fear and shame. We have to believe that this book is living and active and it's powerful to correct us and to transform us into righteousness. We have to utilize, we have to take thoughts captive under the obedience to Christ to believe this word and to proclaim this word over our lives. It's super simple and it's really powerful. It's the presence of God and it's the love of God. It's believing and knowing that the presence of God is in you and that the love of God is casting out fear and shame in your life. I want to put up a couple of verses from the Apostle John, chapter 4, verse 16. God is love. God is love. You want to know the definition of love? It's God. It's God. That's the definition of love. He is love. And whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Like it's not Christmas time, but let's talk about Emmanuel for just a moment. Emmanuel, God with us. But I want you to personalize it. God with me. Right now, right here, right in this place. God is with me. Two verses later, there is no fear in love. There's no fear in the perfect love of God. Perfect love casts out fear, like delivers us from fear. So I just want to invite you, like, make an agreement right now with what is true in the gospel. Like, you can take these truths and personalize that I live in God. God lives in me. Emmanuel is in me. And Romans 2 says that the, the power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Like, you're not powerless, you're powerful. We have to believe that and know that and speak that over our lives. If you think you're powerless, you're believing a lie from the enemy. You're not powerless, you're powerful. You have the power of God, the Holy Spirit in you. I'm preaching right now, church, I'm preaching. Will you make an agreement right now that this is true and will you speak it over your life? This is the opportunity for our own deliverance today. Fear, guilt, shame. Um, shame is demonic. It's different from guilt. Guilt is about our doing. Shame attaches our doing to our identity. Shame is a lie that says, oh, no, no, you didn't make a mistake. You are a mistake. And we attach mistakes to our identity, and when we make those agreements, we give the enemy a foothold, and we believe that we're powerless. We're not powerless. We're powerful because we live in God, and God lives in us, and God is love, and you have the love of God in you. And that love of God casts out fear. The gospel isn't shame on you. The gospel is shame off you. Hallelujah, anybody? Are we awake in here? This is something I would like for you to remember. This is something I would like for you to remember. If you're a note taker, write it down. When you are spiraling out 
and shame. You are prone to believe lies and Jesus will not condemn you and shame you into good behavior. That is not the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, John chapter 16, will convict you of your righteousness. Check me on that. John 16, go check me on that. So if you are feeling like, oh, I'm feeling a lot of shame. Oh, the Holy Spirit's really convicting me. I've heard this before, like, oh, yeah, that was a great sermon. God was, like, hitting me upside the head with a two-by-four, and I just go, no, he wasn't. That'd be like child abuse. Like, let's not attribute to Jesus and the Holy Spirit what the enemy is trying to do in our life. Are y'all with me right now? I'm still preaching. The Holy Spirit convicts you of your righteousness. Shame is the work of the enemy. The gospel isn't shame on you, it's shame off of you. And that's good news for Moses when he's spiraling in shame. I want you to look again. Let's read verse 12 again. He's questioning, who am I? What should I say? I don't know. Please take someone else. And God says this, two things. I will be with you. You will worship. I would invite you to underline that. I will be with you. You will worship. There's a switch. There's a switch. Moses is asking the question, who am I? Does God answer his question? Sometimes God answers our questions. Sometimes he doesn't. Doesn't mean that you can't ask questions. It just means he may not answer your question. He might, you know what? I'm just going to give you a statement. I'm not going to answer your question because your question, you're spiraling in fear and shame. So I'm just going to give you a statement, Moses. And the statement is simply this. I will be with you. You will worship. But God, no one's going to listen to me. No one's going to listen to me. Moses, this isn't about you. This is about me. And so he says, and I want you to notice the switch. Tell them I am who I am sent you. So it goes from who am I to You just keep your eyes on me. I am with you. You worship me. I am. It's not about you, Moses. You don't stop asking that question. I am. Mm, powerful. So Moses gets the strength and courage. God is with me. I'm going to worship. So it's not about who I am. He goes back to Egypt. Uh, but Moses is in process like all of us. Like, if you've ever done any, like, deeper work around fear and shame, uh, you know this, it's a, it's a process. This is not an overnight thing. Like, we take some steps forward, and then we take some steps back, right? Like, we get some deliverance, and we learn, and we grow, and then this thing happens, and I'm like, I'm on this slope of fear and shame again. It's like, you guys, I was like, I had a little spiral last night with fear and shame. Literally. Literally last night. And that's Moses. He's a human being after all. But he goes back and he's taking steps forward. He's like, okay, God's with me. I am. I don't have to ask who am I. I just got to, I am who I am. Okay, okay, okay. I worship, worship, worship. But then he gets back, he gets back to Egypt. And you look at chapter 4, go read this later. The shame and the fear comes again. Verse 1, he's like, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? God, what if they don't listen? Verse 10, I am slow of speech. I'm not a good talker. You got the wrong guy. 
verse 13. And he's like, could I perhaps interest you in my older brother, Aaron? <laughs> right? That's what he says. Here's what's interesting. He says, I am slow of speech. If you go back later and read Acts chapter 7, Stephen will actually make a statement of how, how good of a speaker Moses actually is. It's almost like, like, everybody knows when you speak Moses, you got the goods. You got, like, you're gifted. You're gifted. Like, you're anointed. But, and you're the only one in the room that thinks that you have a problem speaking. It's a live shame. It's a live shame. And he's doing it in chapter 4. And then he gets to verse 13. Oh, Lord, please send... Oh, Please not me. Please send someone else to do this. Um, I don't, have any of you ever bantered with God like this when you felt like God was calling you to something bold or significant to make a real difference? And you're just like, ah, not me. I, I can't do this and I can't do this. And, you know, we compare ourselves to this person, that person, the other person. We're like, we're doing everything we can to dodge and weave out of what God is inviting us by his grace, by the way, to partner with him and deliverance and freedom for people. Relatable to anyone? Verse 14, all this dodging and weaving, maneuvering. It says in verse 14, the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. Listen to what happens next. I'm going to read from verse 24 all the way to the end of chapter 4. Let's read this together. He's back in Egypt and at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Oh my God. His anger burned against him and he's like, you know what? But what happens after this, you guys? Zipporah. I don't, I don't want you to ever forget for the rest of your life that it's Moses and Zipporah. Like, don't disconnect Abraham from Sarah. Don't disconnect Isaac from Rebekah. Don't you ever disconnect Zipporah from Moses, and you're about to learn why. This is going to, this is, oh, you guys. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, circumcised her son. The anger of the Lord burning against Moses. Verse 14. The Lord was about to kill him, but Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. With what? With the flint knife. What was on the flint knife? Blood. Are you with me? Blood was on the flint knife that Zipporah circumcised her son with. Touched Moses' feet with it. Surely, she proclaims this over Moses. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. She said. And so the Lord let him alone. 
Zipporah saved Moses' life. How? Because she fulfilled a covenant from the Abrahamic covenant that Moses failed to do as his father. And Zipporah steps in and she does it. And she touches Moses' feet with the blood of who? Whose blood was it? The son. And what happened to Moses' life? His life was saved. Mind you of a story? Does this remind you of a story? Every, every story, every page is a story about Jesus. And the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. And the Lord said to, Mo, to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron everything that the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the miraculous signs that had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. And he performed the signs before the people. What are the signs? Uh, chapter 4, go back and read this later. When Moses was spinning out in shame, like, ah, I, don't, I, I, I stutter, I, I, uh, you know, I, I don't talk well, uh, they're not going to believe me. God was like, listen, take the staff, throw it down on the ground. It'll become a snake. When you pick it up again, it's going to become a staff again. Stick your hand. Stick your hand in your cloak. Bring it out. It's going to be leprous. Stick it back in. Bring it back out again. It's going to be healed. Take some blood of the Nile. Throw it on the dirt. It's going to become blood. Like God gave him, empowered him with all these signs. And he did those things. And so they were operating in these ways. So that's what is happening here. I didn't read those passages, but that's what's happening here. So they performed the signs for the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and what they do? Fury worshiped. What did God say in verse 12 of Exodus 3? I will, I will be with you. You will worship. When we worship, are our eyes on our shame and our fear and our guilt? No, our eyes are on Zipporah, Zipporah, Hebrews 9, 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. What covered the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3? Blood. Sacrifice. What, what covered the sin of Moses in Exodus 4? blood we all agreed we too need redemption from fear and shame what covers our fear and shame and sin nothing but the blood of jesus every story whispers the name of jesus jesus said in the sermon on the mount if you seek me if you seek me you will find me Jesus is not hiding. This is not hiding, hide and seek. Oh, if we open our eyes, it is right. I am with you. I will be with you. You will worship. 
What can we learn from Moses' 40 years in Midian? Offer just three quick things. Worship team, you guys can come back up. Uh, the work of humility in our lives is deliverance ministry. Like when the disciples asked Jesus, like, what do we have to do to become the greatest? Jesus said, it's the humble servants. Those are the greatest. The work of humility to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put them on Jesus. I think it's C.S. Lewis said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's not being self-critical and self-abasing. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's not making it about you. It's making it about God. The work of humility is deliverance, one thing. Secondly, uh, humility is empowerment. Moses was empowered in his humility to stop asking the question, am I enough? And to start embracing the truth statement, I am who I am. It's him. Humility. Lastly, um, embrace the process of your healing and deliverance. Like, humility is deliverance. Humility is healing Humility is empowering and embrace the process of God working that out in your life. Um, you know, I, I love mountaintop experiences with God. I mean, I like hiking 14ers and I like standing on the summit. Like I would prefer like all of the work of humility happening in my life, in my life on the mountaintop. But when we look at scripture and we look at the stories of scripture, what we tend to see more and more of is that the deeper healing work of God happens not on the mountaintop, but in the valleys. God is willing to take you into valleys because of his goodness and grace to bring healing and deliverance in your life. And he is willing to play the long game. How long was Moses in Midian? 40 years. He went into Midian afraid, broken, intense, reactive. He comes out of Midian broken, humbled, trusting. And what did the people do? They worshiped. Did Moses, did he, did he get the message? Like when God said, Moses, stop asking, who am I? I'm not going to answer that question. Just know this. I will be with you and you will worship. Did he get that? Well, if we fast forward the story, and Greg will probably talk about this more next week, and we'll close here. When they get, when, when they, this is after the ten plagues uh, and all the things, and, they, and Pharaoh finally relents, and they leave Egypt, and they get to the precipice of the Red Sea. Red Sea here, Pharaoh's army's here, and they're in trouble. It's Exodus 14, 14. They're in trouble. It's not God who is speaking to Israel, it's Moses. And Moses tells Israel exactly what God told him when God was calling him to go back to Egypt. It's Exodus 14, 14, and it says, the Lord, Moses is like, stop panicking, don't be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. You, you only have to be still. Psalm 46.10, be still 
and know that I am God. Moses delivered the message to Israel at their most urgent hour, the exact same message that God gave him at his most urgent hour. The work of humility is healing, it is delivering, it is empowering, and I just, I encourage us to embrace the process of a deeper work of humility in our souls. It is for our good. And God may make, may, might make you uncomfortable. He might send you into a valley to teach it to you. Because this lesson is so primary. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives his grace to the, tell me, humble. Lord, humble us. Humble us, Lord. Awaken us to your presence, Lord. Awaken us that we find healing and deliverance when we take our eyes off of pride, arrogant ego or shame, and we get off that performance treadmill and we bow a knee and we come before you and we say, Lord God, this is about you, and we embrace I am is enough for me. I just pray a deeper healing work of humility in all of us this morning. And we want to worship you now in gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.